Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. You expect to continue tap dancing for? Well, at least until uh, I hit that 50 mark. Okay. No, I intend to keep dancing forever. That's why I'm still dancing now. I never stopped. There's no age limit on tap dancing. There's an age limit, yeah. But there's not a sell-by date. Old tap dancers are often really good tap dancers, and they're no longer doing handsprings or cartwheels. I could do other occupations. Like, I have, you know, I have other skills, but I find that when I take a day off, what do I, what do I want to do? I want to make art. I want to go see music. I want to play music. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. And Michelle, we're so glad to have you back from maternity Thank leave. You. Michelle and her husband, Phil, welcomed their second son, Troy, in April. So congratulations. He's beautiful. Thank you. It's so nice to be back. It was a really special time at home. And I'm excited for all the great stories that we're working on. We begin tonight with a story that we first aired back in January. Brian Jones is one of the most respected tap dancers in Rhode Island. He has been tapping out his life story for nearly five decades. Dance aficionados may remember Jones from his days touring with his dance company, The All Tap Review. These days, the performer and choreographer continues to share his love of all things tap with audiences of all ages. Hey everybody, it's closing night. Welcome, congratulations. Let's get warmed up. Brian Jones has been entertaining crowds through tap dancing for nearly 50 years. But on this night, Jones is taking a back seat. A little bit quicker in. After months choreographing a dance routine for students at Salve Regina University, he's shining the spotlight on them. I fell in love with tap dancing in 1971, uh, my 11th grade in high school. I was showing the movie 42nd Street, running the projector, and I made a joke about Ruby Keeler's taps, that they weren't really being made by her feet. There was somebody off screen drumming on a tin can, or that my English teacher was incensed at this joke. Jumped up and tap danced in front of the class. We were all shocked because she was a very sober woman. And after class, I asked her, where did you learn that? And she said, when I was young, we were all gonna be the second Shirley Temple. She showed me the first step. The first step was step. The second step was brush. And I practiced at home that night. Next English class, a couple of days later, I showed them to her and she said, yup. And I was good enough at it that I got a pair of taps put onto my loafers, <laughs> practicing in my parents' basement on a concrete floor. Don't dance on a concrete floor. And she roped me into being in that year's high school production of Anything Goes. So I was a tap dancing sailor <laughs> in the 11th grade. Thanks, everybody. Congratulations. <laughs> See you after. Thank you. Break the leg. But before the dancers take the stage. One of our guest choreographers, Brian Jones. Brian, maybe you can give a little wave back there. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I want the audience to, if not leap up cheering at the end, to be extremely enthusiastic at the end of this dance. So I've been working towards that. 
And uh, at our first rehearsal, I was very pleased. And I was thrilled to discover technically excellent dancers, young people who can already do the basics. Very nice, very nice. Same thing. I love tap dance because I love playing with music and different rhythms that can go with it. And I found it's just a very good way for me to express myself. I was excited to work with Brian and learn more from him. Step brush, ball change, pop brush, step, pop, step, shuffle, ball change, two, three, four. It's going to be my first time on this stage at Salve, so I'm very excited. And I think that this will get people to talk about tap again for sure. I think it's a little bit of a lost art, but I think that more people are starting to begin to appreciate it again, and I'd really like to see it come back even bigger than it was before. Long before Jones became a respected choreographer, he was making a name for himself in college at the Rhode Island School of Design, known as RISD. Do you remember that moment at the RISD Auditorium, 1975, when you're dancing to Happy Feet? That song, yes. by the way, I've been playing it in my happy head. Happy Feet, <laughs> I've got those happy feet. Yes, that's a great tune. I mean, take me back to what was going through your mind that night. I was young, you know, we were just, I think, in our second year at RISD, and we put that dance together, made up mostly of the steps that Mrs. Zarnowski, my English teacher, had taught me a couple of years earlier in, at, in high school. We were nervous wrecks. I, I, I'm surprised as I looked at the footage that we weren't stumbling all around, but um, we had practiced and practiced and drilled and drilled. You're beaming as you say this. Oh, these are wonderful memories because they were outside of regular life in 1969, 1970, 1971. That was flower power, hippie time and so on. A lot of strife about the Vietnam War, lots of change in contemporary music. The Beatles were big, you know, things were shifting from rock and roll to rock. And um, so I was happy to kind of step aside from all that and be engaged in something that seemed classic to me. I think many native Rhode Islanders, when they see this piece, may recognize you from your time doing the all-tap review. Yes, probably, yeah. Take me back to those days and what was that? Well, I'm proud of the fact that it lasted 10 years. We, uh, we reopened the Ocean State Performing Arts Center. It was destined to become a parking lot in the city of Providence, and a whole group came together. Ethel Merman, the Marine Corps Band, the Rhode Island Philharmonic, and the All-Tap Review reopened that theater 50 years after it originally opened. You have been described as the RISD dancer with the lightest, fastest feet around. How does that feel? <laughs> I only weigh 120 pounds, so maybe it's just a, a technical description. But my English teacher, that was her style, up on the balls of the feet, leaping and springing, grasshopper-like, very Fred Astaire-ish. Um, and in fact, Fred Astaire and before him, Bill Robinson brought tap dancing up off the, the ground, the hoofing, and into the air. And uh, that's been my style as well. The genre of music that appeals to you when you're dancing is what kind? Anything. I love techno music for its unsyncopated um, march-like rhythms. I love swing music, anything that swings. I like waltz time. A anything that's got a regular beat is satisfying to a tap dancer. Okay, so you're not just 1930s, 1940s? No, I think all tap dancers have a love for that because it's, it's the... 
It's where modern tap started. I read that you describe yourself as a vaudevillian. Oh yeah. What do you mean by that? My primary aim is to entertain via tap dancing. So I want a seven-year-old girl in the audience to get something wonderful out of my dance, and I want a 70-year-old man to get something out of it too. And by working for all sorts of crowds, just as vaudevillians did. Tap as you knew it from when you first began in the 1970s has evolved drastically. It sure has. Um, when I knew it first in the 1970s, it was a replication of earlier forms. Then Savian Glover came along, as well as other people, and he, he sort of wrenched it back into a black heritage. But it had sort of been uh, almost embarrassing to be a tap dancer and be black at a certain point, because what was left was all these semi-embarrassing uh, Hollywood clips of Bill Robinson. The Nicholas Brothers, they were wonderfully inventive tap dancers. Would that they had not been in Hollywood in the 30s. If they had only been young now, they would be kings of tap dance. And so to be um, a person in the 70s or late 60s wearing an afro and being proud of being black, you kind of avoided tap dancing. Luckily, thanks to black people and Sabian and others saying, no, no, we don't accept that anymore. Tap has finally regained its appropriate um, parenthood as a black and American dance form. As you think about the future of tap, is tap dead? <laughs> it's been dead and then back and dead and back at least four times in my lifetime. But now there's a, yet again, there's another whole younger generation of people bringing tap to life. And I have to say they're not only great, they're doing the things that all the previous revivals kind of forgot in the thrill of tap which is to make sure the dance means something, to give it a structure, to give it that entertainment quality where it will reach across and be of interest to a, a, a non-tap crowd. I see this happening now. You really believe that anybody can put on tap shoes and become a decent tap dancer? Absolutely. Good tap dancer? Yes. Many people say that I, I have two left feet, but if you can walk, and if you have a sense of rhythm, and just about everybody does, I've never met an arrhythmic person. So yes, picking up the facility of tap is not that difficult. But can anyone learn these basics? My producer put me to the task. Just that one sound is a brush. Brush, good. Now, when you get really good at this, step, Woo! shove. Well, that's what practice does. Lunge. <laughs> there you go, that's it. Once again, lunge. That's the hardest part for me. <laughs> lunge. Excellent, very good. To Jones's credit, he's that. a patient man. We hold for applause. Okay. And who's going to clap for us? Well, whoever's throwing roses and, and $20 bills, yeah. Let's try this. Here's a new step. Step, toe, toe. Other side. Step. Now it was time to put all those tap steps together. Three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Hold the pose. Congratulations, well done. Jones says that he intends to keep tap dancing for many more years. 
Not bad, not bad. You expect to continue tap dancing for? Well, at least until uh, I hit that 50 mark. Okay. No, I intend to keep dancing forever. That's why I'm still dancing now. I never stopped. There's no age limit on tap dancing. There's an age limit, yeah. But there's not a sell-by date. Old tap dancers are often really good tap dancers, and they're no longer doing handsprings or cartwheels. It's really not my style anymore. So I want to compete on a theatrical ground. I want to draw an audience in. I want them to leave feeling as though they had danced. Brian Jones recently finished teaching summer classes at the studio in Narragansett. He plans to resume teaching tap dancing in September. And now, someone contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew first introduced us to back in March. He's a man who has been entertaining the eyes and ears of New England for almost 30 years. Visual artist and musician Dan Blakesley. I don't cut corners, never have, never will. I'm just hoping that, that one day long after I'm gone that, the, that my, my, my artwork and music will, will still uh, continue to live. Ride. That pretty feet, my heart you It was at the Canadian border back in For New England artist and musician Dan Blakesley, a passionate work ethic and self-starter mentality has been the key to his creative vitality. Blazing his own multi-platform trail through visual art and songwriting, Blakesley has established himself as a distinct character in New England and beyond, something he says can be traced to his childhood roots. South Berwick, Maine is where, where, uh, where I'm from, and, uh, and I, throughout my whole life, like, I grew up in a house like very artful and uh, family, musical family, and I was kind of dabbling with both art and music growing up. His passion and skill landed Blakesley at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, where he realized that through developing a wide array of skills, he could produce a variety of content to help build the infrastructure for a successful artistic career. So this way, when I get out of art school, Oh, and if I need to build a light box, hey, I can build it. You know, I, I took, uh, you know, carpentry or woodworking in art school. And if I need to photograph my work, I took uh, photography. And, but the thing that I gravitated most towards is drawing. And that's been with me my entire life because I feel like it's also something I can have on me at all times. Blinksley says art school was so intense that he needed to find an escape from the pressure he found it in songwriting. My parents had got me a guitar when I was 18, and it was sitting in the corner of the room at, at art school, and I'm like, one night I was doing like an overnight project, I'm like, I'm gonna lose my mind unless I do something else. So I started playing guitar, and, uh, and then that sort of like sparked this big interest in, you know, playing music, and didn't know that, that I'd be doing both as like a dual career the rest of my life. Ultimately, Blakesley recorded his first album in a basement in Baltimore before returning back home to Maine following his graduation. It's giving me chills thinking about it because like, I remember when I moved back home, man, look at that. <laughs> Authentic. <laughs> and I remember when I moved back home, I was like, all right, 
I did all this art work at art school. Now what am I going to do? That's when he decided to make a critical decision, which changed his life. Decided I'm not going to make artwork for a year. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to do music only. So I, so I was working in a lobster restaurant and, uh, and working there for a few summers. And uh, so I started playing my gigs. And the thing is, when you play gigs, you got to make show posters. So I was still drawing, so I was drawing my show posters. And then I started playing some, some like art spaces and breweries and things like that. And, uh, and I was playing at the Portsmouth Brewery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I've been playing there like the whole summer and they said, hey man, we, we like your posters. Would you ever want to make some beer labels? I'm like, yes. Blanksley discovered that by working as a singer-songwriter, he was simultaneously expanding his opportunities and reach as a visual artist. Eventually, his boss at the lobster restaurant gave him an ultimatum. And he said, I can't hire you back. I'm like, what? I said, I'm one of your best employees, and he knew that. But he said, and I had handed him my tape at the uh, end of the summer of the previous year, and he said, you're supposed to be out there playing music. He said to me, okay, here's the deal. Book as many shows as you can this summer, and you can work on the in-between days. And then, and then the next year you can't anymore. You have to be out there playing. He took his boss's orders to heart, booking and performing shows as often as he could while creating a new poster for every gig. My name is Daniel Luxburg. Young man of 33, born in the eyes of the ocean, captain of Later, he moved to Boston, where he set out to perform each and every day. Blakesley didn't care about the location. For him, it was all about the experience of creating live music. Like that I didn't have a gig above ground, I would be playing underground, and I feel like that really helped um, uh, broaden my reach because, you know, any, any random person walking down the subway that day, if they stumble across the music and they like it, you know, they might not have had that experience. How many years did that go on for, that process? I did that, I did that for, like, uh, off and on for 20 years. I'm lonely in the dust upon your train over the following decades, Blakesley began to tour nationally, expanding his fan base on a nightly basis at events like the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. In 2017, he moved to Providence, joining a growing indie folk community that was largely based around the city's Columbus Theater, as well as the Newport Folk Festival. It happened pretty, pretty naturally and organic, and uh, I, I went to, uh, my first ever Newport Folk Festival, and this is like probably like 11, 12 years ago. And I was so enamored at how down to earth everybody was. He became a popular member of the Folk Festival's undercurrent of buskers and unofficial performers, eventually being invited to deliver a sanctioned performance in 2019. In 2021, after a year hiatus due to the pandemic, Newport Folk returned, with Blakesley named the festival's official busker, which included delivering the event's first performance following the pandemic, something he says festival producer Jay Sweet conceived 
while sleeping. It was three days before the festival this year, and he said, I woke up from a dream last night and that you were the official busker for Newport Folk Festival. So what do you say? I'm like, yes. Because for years, I had always busked um, at the end of the festival while people are waiting to get the ferry, you know, and, and play until like everyone's gone. And, and, uh, and it was so nice to be asked to be officially part of the festival. Blakesley has released 10 albums, including Christmas records and one under his annual Halloween alter ego, Dr. Gasp. He has sold countless pieces of art, including designing the iconic Boston Heart in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombings. But perhaps his most famous creation is a beer label. His drawing of famed microbrew Hetty Topper was ranked the top beer label in the country by USA Today. At the end of the day, it's hard to define Blakesley's career. So, no surprise at the answer we got when we asked him which hat he prefers wearing, visual artist or musician. That's a big question because I feel like with me, um, from my experiences that I'm so passionate about both that I can't like, I mean, I could do other occupations. Like I have, you know, I have other skills. But I find that when I take a day off, what do, I, what do I want to do? I want to make art. I want to go see music. I want to play music. Dan Blakesley is now living full-time in Kennebunkport, Maine. Finally tonight, a second look at a cultural center in Woonsocket where visitors can see the genius of an artist who paid homage to the great Italian masters of the Renaissance, one glorious brushstroke at a time. I'm Dominic Duaron, and welcome to the St. Anne Arts and Cultural Center. Many people will drive by the outside of the church and when they look at the structure, the outside gives no hint whatsoever as to what is contained inside. And it contains the largest collection of fresco artwork in North America. This is the, uh, the same style as the famed Sistine Chapel in Rome. Uh, some people call it the Sistine Chapel of Rhode Island. What we see today was not what the parishioners saw back in the day. Uh, there were no fresco paintings. It was the walls and ceilings were finished in a gray stucco cement. Uh, there were no stained glass windows and there was no marble. It was a byproduct of the American Industrial Revolution. Uh, at the time, in the 19th century, uh, many mills had opened up here in Woonsocket and they needed workers. So they turned north to Canada and so St. Anne's itself was the second of the several French Canadian parishes that were opened and it was founded in 1890. And so 1925, they added the stained glass windows, uh, which were imported from Chartres, France. And then in the 1940s, the pastor of the time decided, let's, let's add a, a little bit more color to the building. And so he visited different churches uh, around New England and found the Italian artist Guido Ninkiri. Guido Ninkiri uh, was born in Prato, Italy. His father wanted him to take over the family textile business. Uh, Ninkiri had a huge passion for the arts and that's what he wanted to study. And they had a big argument and his father beat him with a stick um, and it displaced a couple of his vertebrae. And over several years, he developed a very pronounced hunch. But um, he wasn't deterred. He walked the train tracks from Prato, Italy to Florence uh, with 
this incredible back pain. And he was homeless for just about a year. One day, an artist who taught at the famed Academy of Florence that was founded by the popular Medici family literally took him into his house and got him into the Academy of Fine Arts. And uh, he married, and um, part of the honeymoon, they decided to visit some friends that had come over to the United States. While he was here in Boston, um, his father wrote to him and said, don't come home. The um, political climate of Italy at the time, with the rise of fascism, things weren't going so well in Europe. I think part of what uh, Ninkiri was so excited about when he came into this building was he saw an opportunity to do his own Sistine Chapel, because the fresco style doesn't present itself often. For eight years, there was always wooden scaffolding in the building somewhere. Some of the interesting faces we have, um, one of them is the parish sexton, Alphonse Lavalli, the parish janitor. Uh, he's portrayed as Jonah in Jonah and the Whale. Um, and when you look at Jonah and the Whale, um, he's this very incredible physique, this great body. And that was his body as well. Those are the days when there was a coal-fired furnace, and so he was in the boiler room shoveling coal. The story with the painting of this building has so many similarities to when Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Uh, there was controversy. Uh, Ninkiri paints Adam and Eve. The Mother Superior of the time kind of led a little revolt about it because she wasn't happy that these figures were nude. And he goes to do another painting called The Rebellion of the Angels, where uh, Saint, uh, Archangel Michael and the uh, heavenly angels are casting the rebellious angels into hell. And in that painting, Michael is piercing one of the rebellious angels. And you can see part of her face, and he based that face on that mother superior. All the faces in the walls and the ceilings, every single face, was a parishioner who sat in these pews or a member of the city of Woonsocket. And what we're saving um, isn't just a church structure, uh, but it's a scrapbook. It's a snapshot, a moment of time. Uh, these people who were immortalized were textile workers. These are the people who worked in the mills. Here we have portraits of the common person, and you don't see that in a lot of places. Our thanks again to Dominic Duarn for that tour. On an interesting note, St. Anne's Arts and Cultural Center started life as a Roman Catholic church, but in the 1990s, amid declining attendance, the diocese decided to put the property up for sale. Citizens in Woonsocket pulled their resources to save St. Anne's from developers, and for that, many are eternally grateful. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.